Psalm 126. Our theme today is joy on the journey. Joy on the journey. Well, when you take a journey with your friends or family, particularly if you travel along familiar roads, it usually brings to mind some experiences and memories from the past. Maybe that was the case for some of you uh, over these summer weeks as you went off on holiday, maybe to a favourite holiday destination that you've been to many times before. And as you begin a new holiday, you also start talking about previous holidays and uh, good times from the past. Familiar places, familiar journeys, they, they trigger memories of the ups and downs of the past. Uh, perhaps we come away from them with either fresh anxiety or fresh hope for the future. Psalm 126 is an example of that. As I mentioned, it's one of the songs of ascents sung by faithful pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. And in this song, it's as though the travellers on the road, they're, they're getting their first glimpse of Jerusalem. The city is moving into view and the, the, the excitement is building as they look forward to arriving in this, uh, this blessed, precious place. This place where they will gather with all the tribes of Israel. This place where they will worship together with all their extended family and, and nation. And as they gathered together as they did regularly it would surely have sparked off for them memories of past days memories of what they had experienced in traveling to Jerusalem before and they have fresh anticipation for what lies ahead this time and their hearts are filled with joy (coughs) the Christian life is a journey to heaven as John Bunyan so vividly portrays in the pilgrim's progress And that being the case, the the Christian life can and should be a journey of joy. A journey of joy. And that perhaps invites a challenging question for us this morning. How joyful are we? How joyful are we? Included in what Paul describes as the fruit of the Spirit. So the evidence that you belong to Christ and have the Holy Spirit working in your life. Part of the, the evidence of that, the fruit of the Spirit is joy and joy is not just happiness it's not just that passing rush of nice emotion that you get when uh, maybe someone likes your instagram post or (coughs) someone gives you good news or your favorite team wins a match that sort of happiness can come and go very quickly but joy in the bible is something far deeper and uh, far stronger than uh, trying to appear happy as, uh, to, the, to the world all the time as some people are, uh, are doing. True joy is something that only Christians can truly experience. It's living with a confidence and a hope and a thankfulness, even in sometimes the most heartbreaking or frustrating, anxiety-inducing circumstances. It's reflected in this past week of effort and witness in the life of our congregation So mentioned, this psalm came immediately to mind. And I hope you, like me, see plenty of reasons to be encouraged by all that's been done in this past week by God's grace. But regardless of how we might feel, this psalm reminds us of the right perspective that we are to have as we continue our journey toward heaven and Christ. This psalm reminds us of how we can have joy on the journey. The psalm splits very neatly into two parts. And so first of all today we consider joyfully looking back. 
joyfully looking back. And we see that in verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 declares, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Literally the language there means, When the Lord turned a turning. In other words, when God turned a situation around, things were headed one way. It seemed as though perhaps something disastrous was going to happen. (coughs) It seemed as though all hope was lost. But God intervened and God turned things around on behalf of his people. That's what restored our fortunes means. And Psalm 126 joyfully looks back at such a turning. Notice it says, when the Lord restored. So they're looking back and they're remembering a particular time or maybe several times when God had done this for them. And as the people look back to these times of turning and and blessing, they say it was like a a dream come true, verses 1 and 2. We were like those who dream. It fills them with excitement. It fills them with joy to remember some dire circumstance they were in, some bleak situation that God turned for their good and for their joy. The good stanza two or verse two, verse two. Our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Maybe they were thinking, and of course, eventually this would have been perhaps centuries later. But they might have thought back to their history, they thought about God bringing them through the Red Sea, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. God turned things around for the Israelites. Maybe they thought about instances of God giving victory to David. When it seemed as though some nation was going to be too powerful for Israel. And God again turned things for his people. Or maybe they thought about the exile coming to an end. The 70 years spent in Babylon. And finally the the exiles were able to go home. And it's like a dream come true. And we've heard people haven't we speak on TV. uh, Maybe someone wins a huge amount of money on a game show or. A footballer or a rugby player wins the World Cup and they say things like this. It was a dream come true. I can hardly believe it. Well, that's how God's people feel. As they mark times in their lives of God turning things around for them. They're full of joy. It's a dream come true. And the restoration, the, the turning that they're remembering was so dramatic, whatever it was, that the pagan nations around them had noticed it. If you look at verses Two and three. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And in verse three, God's people respond to the nations around them. Yes, that is what's happened. You're absolutely right. The Lord has done great things for us. Verse three. We're not taking any of the credit. It's our God who has done these things for us. We are glad. And so the nations have seen that the God of Israel has blessed them and Restored them. It's a witness to them. Where you look for joy tells you where your priorities lie in life. Or or who or what you're most concerned with or invested in. These people are believers in the God of Israel. Their joy is bound up with the, the fortunes of Zion. How things are going for God's people. And as they trudge the long, dangerous, tiring road up to Jerusalem... Perhaps knowing that many of their neighbours are not bothering anymore. Or that many of the pagan nations around them think it's all a bit of a joke. Nonetheless, they begin to joyfully look back. Do you remember when God restored us before? 
Do you remember how bleak everything looked for us? Do you remember how full of joy we were when God changed everything and flooded us with blessing? Do you remember the restoration that God provided for us? These men and women are concerned with the glory of God, the welfare of each other and their witness to the nations. That's, that's their main priorities in life. The glory of God, the welfare of each other and their witness to the nations. And that's why they prioritize going to Jerusalem in the first place. And that's why they go, despite all the reasons they might have had to not bother going. They go with joy. They go with excitement and anticipation. They go giving thanks that in the past, God has restored them many times. I don't know how you look back on recent weeks and months in your life. For some, of course, there has been heartbreaking loss. Maybe for others, there have been times of real encouragement and rest and holiday. Maybe for those of you who are older, you're beginning to look back further. You're beginning to reflect on the course of your whole life to this point and beginning to make assessments of it. Human beings tend to look back in at least, one, in, in, in at least two different ways. Either we, we look back and we yearn or we look back and we learn. Some people look back in their lives and they just yearn to go back. I wish I still looked like that. I wish I could experience that particular day or that particular season of life again. We yearn to have the things we had or to have the abilities that once we had or to achieve the things that we did. Maybe you know people who are just always living in yesteryear or yesterdecade. You always know when you spend time with this person, there'll be some story told from some particular year that we've heard many times before. And of course it's good, it's nice, it's enjoyable to reminisce about times that we hold with particular fondness. But, but maybe sometimes people just look back and they just wish they were back in that place or back in that time. Maybe that's you today. Maybe as Christians we look back and yearn for days of greater spiritual life in the community round about us. There was a time, I'm told by much older believers than me, when a Sunday morning in Belfast, or maybe it was in Dromore as well, the streets were just packed with people on their way to one church or another. But as we drove here this morning, it's pretty quiet as people enjoy what is often referred to now as a lazy Sunday, seeing to themselves. Wouldn't it be better, we think, if we could go back to a time before all of this, the problem is, friends, that such yearning doesn't tend to give us much joy. In fact, yearning often robs us of joy. It doesn't give us any motivation for today and tomorrow and the challenges that we face. And so we shouldn't just look back and yearn. But we should look back and learn and, and ask ourselves, well, how was it that once there were many hundreds of people on their way to worship on a Lord's Day morning? Was it just always like that here in this part of the world? Well, no, it wasn't. It's easy for us to think as though it was, because that's the way it was for so long. But it wasn't always like that. There was a time when this island didn't have the gospel at all. 
There was a time when no one on the island of Ireland knew the name of Jesus Christ. And so what happened? God turned a great turnout. God restored the fortunes of his people. God worked for the good of his name. And it's good for us to remember that and to look back and learn and give thanks for that. Because if God had did that once, God can do it again. It's good to look back and remind yourself as an individual Christian. I wasn't always a Christian. Even for those of us who perhaps would say truthfully and rightly that we have been believers for as long as we can remember. Many of us here today would say that. Maybe not all of us. But we weren't always believers. We were dead in transgressions and sins. We had no hope and no joy. And God turned a turning in our lives. And if God has done that for us, God can do that for many other people as well. If there used to be a time when lots and lots of men and women and boys and girls were so moved by God's spirit and by the preaching of God's word that they were worshipping him in far greater numbers than what we see today. Let that give you hope that it can happen again. And so shouldn't we keep coming together and praying together even if so many people around about us are not? Psalm 126 verse 2 says that the joy of God's people was obvious even to the pagan nations around them. Their pagan neighbours could clearly see the worship of their God, the obedience to God's word. It clearly matters to these people. And they could even see at times that the Lord had done great things for them. Is that what people would say about you and I? Even if they don't yet know our Saviour, they see the joy that we have in our Saviour. And so knowing that God has done it once should give us joy as we hope that he can do it again. And we trudge on, we journey on, joyful and confident and expectant. And so whatever you're facing today, pressures, problems, worries, don't, don't forget to look back and learn. Don't just yearn for better days. The glory days maybe weren't so glorious as we think sometimes as well. That's another thing to bear in mind as we are tempted to look back and yearn. But take comfort today, whatever you may be facing, whatever pressures or problems. Our God is a God who can do great turnings and who can restore our fortunes. Let that give you joy. He did it yesterday. Maybe he will do it again today or tomorrow. And that leads us to the second half of this psalm. Uh, having joyfully looked back, the, the singers here also joyfully look forward. They joyfully Look forward, verses 4 to 6. Verse 4, he says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Notice the phrase repeated again. They've looked back and they've remembered that God has restored their fortunes before. Now they look forward and they say, God, what you have done in the past, do for us again. And if this psalm was, was sung by the exiles when the Jews finally returned to Jerusalem after 70 years in Babylon... Then it was sung at a time of great frustration and difficulty and challenge. They weren't singing these words every time with just everything hunky-dory in Jerusalem and in the promised land. There was opposition to the very existence of Jerusalem. Some of their fellow Jews were unwilling to roll up their sleeves and get to work in the rebuilding of the temple or the rebuilding of the city or to give their time or energy or finances for the work of the kingdom. You can read about these things in books like Nehemiah and Ezra and 
some of the prophets. There were periods of famine and economic hardship. God's people were less powerful militarily and politically and economically than they had been at any time in their history, perhaps as far back as the judges or even uh, the, the, the exodus. <coughs> but in the middle of all of that, the prayer of these pilgrims is, Lord, restore our fortunes. Restore our joy. They continue to pray for God to do the things that he has done before. And there are two pictures in the second half of this psalm to show us what kind of restoration, what kind of turning that they were praying for. First of all, in verse 4, the psalmist says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Like streams in the Negev. The Negev was in the south of Israel. It was a riverbed that could get very dry and barren if there wasn't enough rainfall. Everything would quickly just wither and die. But when heavy rain did come to the Negev, uh, there could be an almost overnight transformation. In the space of just a few days, what had been dead and brown and dry could burst into green life. Uh, The vegetation in the area could sprout up very quickly if there was enough hard, fast rainfall. Some of our farmers can maybe think of times coming up to the harvest when uh, one or two good weeks of really ideal weather Change the landscape altogether, uh, and and your your hopes for the harvest soared uh, from what they had been. Just in the space of a few days, everything looked so much more full of life. And it's that kind of almost instant transformation that the psalmist longs for here. Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev, like a a rush of new life. But then there's a second picture to describe this restoration, or to describe. Maybe another form of restoration. If you look at verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. Here's a very different picture now. This is not instant transformation. This is what we might call daily perspiration. Sweat and tears and hard work. With no immediate reward. Day after day after day. And this is what life was like for many of the the peasants of Israel. They had their little plot of promised land. They worked it year in, year out. They sowed their seed and sowed their seed and sowed their seed. And at times keeping that land was backbreaking, painful work with no immediate reward. And so you have to picture this broken-hearted sore of seed with the, the scorching sun beating down and the earth cracking underfoot and they think, do I dare go out and waste the little amount of seed that I have on ground like this? But he goes out in faith, believing that in due time there will be a harvest. He sheds his tears and he sows his seed. That's how the faithful pilgrims felt post-exile. We're a small little band of people. There's not much spiritual life around us. We just keep trudging on. But what's the result of all that heartbreaking, faithful work? Twice we're told, he shall reap with shouts of joy. He shall come home bringing his sheaves with him. 
So notice, friends, two very different pictures. The negative, the instant transformation. But then the sower of seed with his daily frustration. No instant results at all. But the result in both cases is life and joy in the end. And those two very different pictures summed up the thoughts and feelings of the faithful pilgrims going to Jerusalem. They longed for a Negev-style instant transformation. But they were faithful enough to keep going with their daily frustrations. They were prepared to sow in tears, believing that in the end they would reap with shouts of joy. And this is the kind of attitude that we need to cultivate in our lives and in our churches, that we expect great things while we toil at what might seem small things. Some of you maybe fall into one or one or one or these one of these categories or the other. Some of us maybe love to dream of that negative transformation, the instant transformation, the all of a sudden the rush of revival. Lots of churches getting planted, lots of converts coming in, lots of uh, lots of leaders being raised up and it's good to want those things. It's good to pray for those things. Some of you perhaps are more focused on just plodding along and praying for God's help to be faithful with the, the scattering of seed on, on hard ground. And that's good as well. And there needs to be a, a sort of a, if you like, a sanctified stubbornness. I'm just going to keep doing this. Just going to keep working at this. Just going to keep worshipping and witnessing and praying to the glory of God. Even if we're doing it in tears year after year. And it's good to have that attitude as well. But by God's grace, we, we need a balance of both of these things in our minds. And this is what it means to be joyful. It's not just plastering on a happy face and pretending everything in life is rosy. It's persevering. It's sowing the seed in tears. It's deeply passionate about getting to the flooded Negev day. But it's deeply committed to plodding through the barren fields on those days as well. This picture of the farmer sowing his seed in tears it tells us that if you want sheaves in your hands, you might need to be prepared for tears in your eyes first. If we want sheaves in our hands, we need to be prepared for tears in our eyes. And that's why we can look back with thankfulness at all that we've been doing in these weeks. And we look forward believing that God will add blessing to the sowing of gospel seed. Jesus said, in some cases it produces 30, in some 60, and some 100. Sometimes there is that good soil that the seed finds. Sometimes there's that rocky ground or that thorny ground or that bad soil. Some of you have been faithfully sowing gospel seed with family members or friends for years. Inviting them to church or a Bible study or a guest service. And there's been no fruit and perhaps even you've had a cross word in response. Keep going. Press on with joy. As Paul told the Philippians. God may yet bring transformation. Parents, as we navigate the difficult terrain of our duties. And trust that every moment of teaching or discipline or family worship. Trust that it is a seed. Perhaps a seed sown in tears. But which will reap a harvest. As we come here for worship or prayer or fellowship week by week. In a world around us that seems dead and uninterested. We can still do it with joy. 
God has restored before, God can restore again. When and how he chooses. Sometimes it is really hard to be joyful. Some of you have your joy hindered perhaps by physical pain or sickness with no end in sight. Some people today aren't joyful though because they're looking for joy in the wrong places. And even Christians we can fall into this. Get so caught up with whatever it might be. Possessions, experiences, social media popularity, whatever. That we lose our joy. But friends, the church must be joyful. If there's no joy to be found in the world, the world needs to see that we are a joyful church. Like these faithful pilgrims and like that faithful sower. Again, joy is, a, is part of the fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians. It's part of the evidence that we belong to Jesus Christ. If you have nothing to be joyful about today, could it be that you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ at all? Because there is no joy like the joy of knowing that your sin is forgiven. You're headed for heaven. That there is no more punishment to be paid. Because Christ has paid it for you on the cross. Do you know that joy today? And if you do, but <coughs> that joy is maybe feeling somewhat diminished by the hardness of these days that we live in. Or the disappointments of not seeing the numbers that we would like. Or whatever it might be. Plod on. Sow the seed in tears. The world needs to see the joy that there is to know in knowing Jesus Christ. The world will find that joy nowhere else. And of course what Christ calls us to do, he has done himself. So we were thinking a bit last week, he preached, he proclaimed good news, he called people. He went to Jerusalem as the faithful pilgrims always did. And Jesus went to Jerusalem and Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And then Jesus went and died for Jerusalem. Died in our place for our sins. So that we would know that joy of restoration. Whether it be the negative transformation or whether it be the daily frustration. We will know joy everlasting. When we see the harvest fully brought in. In heaven's glory. And so if you're praying about that harvest today. If you're witnessing. If you're, if you're plotting. Keep on going. You shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing your sheaves with you. Amen.